0: Well, if you've got a bible open up to zechariah chapter 9. zechariah chapter 9 we'll be in the first part of the chapter and uh and we'll look to finish up chapter 9 next sunday lord willing but this morning we're in zechariah chapter 9 verses 1 through 8. we continue on in the series in uh zechariah this minor prophet that's there at the, the tail end of the Old Testament. It's page 748. If you're using one of our hardback Bibles, it'll be helpful to have the word open so you can follow along. Zechariah verses uh, chapter 9, verses 1 through 8. Um, also, there's an outline there in the worship guide if that's helpful for you to keep an eye on as, as we move along. Zechariah 9, verses 1 through 8. Um, there was a baseball player who was really popular, well, moderately popular when I was growing up, named Rafael Palmero, who was a good player, played for the Orioles, started out with the Cubs, played for the Orioles, played for the Rangers, um, had a really, really good career. The, the only problem was he was a steroid user, um, which for the first part of his career, probably only Rafael Palmero and whoever gave him steroids and maybe some teammates, they were the only ones that probably knew about that. The rest of the world didn't, so we were all just really, really impressed. But when they started testing players regularly in the nineties and in the early two thousands, uh Palmero knew that most likely he, he was gonna get caught, and then he did. So he had a couple of tests in a row that were positive tests, and Major League Baseball let him know, hey, so you're gonna be in trouble for this. Now they didn't make it known public right away, but he knew that that, that was coming. And in fact, that was in the run up to him getting his three thousandth hit which is significant. And so when that celebration happened, Palmero knew I'm about to get in trouble, but nobody else knew about it publicly. And, and he talks about how he just tried to not think about it, which you can put yourself in his shoes. What a hard thing. There's this exciting event going on. you got your 3000th hit and, uh, and there's a big celebration from the team and the organization and the fans. But, but in the back of his head, he knows that, that he's about to be uncovered as somebody who, who would use steroids and, and was sort of a sham and all of that would, would be taken from him. Well, well, one day, every one of God's enemies will be in that same situation. So even though, even though as sinners, even as non-Christians, we understood our sin, we understood there was a way that we were rebelling against the Lord, the thing about the, the non-believing heart is uh, it suppresses that truth. But one day, God's judgment is coming. And every human will have to stand before the Lord. And, and that's really what our passage this morning is about. So, so hear the word of the Lord, Zechariah 9, 1 through 8. This is what we're told. The oracle of the word of the Lord is against the land of Hadrach, and Damascus is its resting place. For the Lord has an eye on mankind and on all the tribes of Israel, and on Hamath also, which borders on it, Tyre and Sidon, though they were very wise. Tyre has built herself a rampart and heaped up silver like dust and fine gold like the mud of the streets. But behold, the Lord will strip her of her possessions and strike down her power on the sea, and she will be devoured by fire. Ashkelon shall see it and be afraid. Gaza too, and shall writhe in anguish. Ekron also, because its hopes are confounded. The king shall perish from Gaza. Ashkelon shall be uninhabited. A mixed people shall dwell in Ashdod, and I will cut off the pride of Philistia. I will take away its blood from its mouth and its abominations from between its teeth. It too shall be a remnant for our God. It shall be like a clan in Judah, and Ekron shall be like the Jebusites. Then I will encamp at my house as a guard, so that none shall march to and fro. No oppressor shall again march over them. For now I see with my own eyes." Okay, well, we're going to see four main points in our, in our text this morning. They're listed there in the outline. The, the first one we're going to see from this passage, God is against sinners. The second point we're going to see, the world will distract itself from thinking about that fact. They'll distract themselves from the thought of God's judgment. Third, a sinful world will have no defense against God. And finally, because of the gospel, God chooses to save people from among these enemies so the first point we see in this passage god is against sinners now in a way we're going to see toward the end of our passage that god isn't against sinners so in god's amazing grace he decides to save a group of sinners from among humanity so so there's a way in which he is extremely for sinners but in another way god is against sinners And we know that generally, but we know it from our passage because that's basically the exact language that's used about God here in verse 1. So in verse 1, we're told the oracle of the word of the Lord is against the land of Hadrach. Well, right off the bat, let's talk about that word oracle. We don't use that often. So what's what's an oracle? Well, we have that language here. It it talks about what we read in chapter 9 through 11. So the next couple of chapters, this is all one oracle. That God gives. And then we have another oracle that opens up chapter 12 and, and runs through the end of the book. So what's an oracle? Well, it, it looks like there God is talking about a, a prophecy uh, about the future uh, and sort of like a proclamation about his judgment in particular. So when he proclaims his judgment, that's what we're to understand here by this word oracle. And, and that's, a, that's a weighty thing when God proclaims his judgment against a group of people. In fact, that word oracle, it's sometimes, sometimes it's uh, translated as burden, because God's word about his judgment is, is heavy on people. So it's a proclamation about God's judgment. And these oracles that we have in Zechariah, just like all of Scripture, they're from the Lord. That seems pretty clear. We see it in verse 1 the oracle of the word of the Lord. So the words of this oracle they're they're god's words and god's word is attached to god they're inseparable right the one is is the other that's why it's such a silly thing when when somebody might say they love god but then they disbelieve and disregard his word that doesn't make any sense that's that's not a logical thing it's it's illogical because god is so tied to his word it it would be like saying hey i really value this teacher i just don't believe a thing that he says That doesn't make any sense right you can't value a teacher quote unquote but not believe any of his words well it's the same thing with the lord god's word is is directly inseparably tied to god so when verse one says the oracle of the word of the lord is against the land of hadrach understand that means that god himself is against those people god himself is against the land of of hadrach and again, this is our first main point. God is, is against, he's opposed to sinners. And it's, it's not just this one land of Hadrach that, that God is against. Look down at verse 2. And on Hamath also, which borders on it, Tyre and Sidon, though they are very wise. So God's word of judgment, his oracle, it's against these places too that he just lists. But, but there are more. Verse 5. Ashkelon shall see it and be afraid, Gaza too, and shall writhe in anguish, Ekron also. Now, these are all nations that geographically surrounded God's people that were kind of around them. You looked at it on a map, and God is against the people in these places. That's what we're told here in, in Zechariah. So why, right? Why is God against these people? Well, it's because of their sin and that's implied throughout but we see it explicitly in verse 7. So look over at verse 7. Talking about these different groups of people the Lord the Lord says, "I will take away its blood from its mouth and its abomination from between its teeth." Okay, so so what's that mean? Well, that word abomination in the Old Testament, it's almost always used to talk about idol worship not idol like lazy worship but no idol like a fake god worshiping a god other than the one true real god and and we know that in some of those nations in in their religious rituals they would drink blood or some of them would eat meat that had been offered to their idols that hadn't had all the blood cooked out of it that's the thing that we read about pretty regularly from these other nations in in the Old Testament. So all that to say, verse seven is pointing us to to the idol worship of these other nations, that they would worship these these fake gods and not the one real God. So they're they're withholding worship from God, which is a serious thing because that's the thing we were created to do. That's our sole purpose. The sole purpose of every human who's ever lived is to worship the one true God, to only give him our worship. But these folks, these nations, they're giving the worship that God deserves. They're giving it to fake gods. But see, on our own, that's what humans do. This is what Paul says in Romans 1. He says that people trade the worship of God for, for the worship of fake gods. He says, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. So we're created for one purpose to glorify God, but, but people that deviate from that and withhold worship from God and give it to something else, that's, that's a sinful thing. Again, the word verse seven uses to characterize that withholding of worship from God is abomination. So it's, it's no small thing, right, to steal worship away from God and give it to something else. Stealing worship away from God is an abomination. That's a good question to ask yourself, is do I see it that way? Do I take that as seriously as the word takes it, as the passage we have this morning seems to take it? Am am I aligned with scripture and how serious I think it is to withhold worship from God and give it to some created thing? And more important than that, what are the created things that I'm tempted to give worship to other than the one true God? There's a New Testament scholar, his name is Don Carson, D.A. Carson. Uh, we actually have a, a devotional by him called For the Love of God that's back on the bookshelf. It's great. But, but he's given this great definition, uh, definition of an idol where he says it's, it's anything other than God that we're tempted to, uh, to seek our happiness, our hope, our significance, or our security. So those four things, if we're trying to get those things from something other than God our hope our happiness our significance or our security then that's a thing we're treating as an idol we're treating a created thing the way we're only supposed to treat the lord who's the one where we are supposed to get our hope happiness significance and security so with with that rubric you can kind of think about that and think okay with that in mind what created things am i tempted to worship so so, are you tempted to take some of your hope out of the Lord and, and put it in your physical health? That's an easy thing to do, isn't it? To put my hope in my physical health. Or are you sometimes tempted to have your happiness depend not on the Lord, but on your family? So if things aren't going well with your family, you're not gonna have any happiness. And when things are going well with your family, despite the way you feel about the Lord, you, you have lots of happiness. Or are you tempted to see your significance Not in your status as a child of God through your connection to Jesus, but instead through your skills at work and the kind of employee you are or what you're good at. You see your significance primarily there. Or are you tempted to find your security, not in God, but in your bank account. I did all of these things this past week as I wrote those sentences. I wrote them thinking, what would God have us think about? And it's easy to do that in sort of an objective way. But as soon as I wrote the sentences, I thought, I have done all of those things. There's times this week where my significance, my security, my hope, and my happiness, I wasn't chiefly going to the Lord for those things. I was going to other created things, like the things I just listed. It's so easy to do. But because it's so easy, it's easy for us to downplay it. But let's not downplay it. What I just said, the things I did this past week, and most likely you did, that's worship theft. That's us breaking into God's house and stealing something that belongs to Him, which is worship. Isn't that wild? That's a, that's a bad thing, but that's what we've done. Now, now praise God that, that as Christians, when we recognize our sin, we, we turn from that sin and, and we ask for forgiveness and help from the Spirit to, to put that sin to death. Well, these enemy nations they were reveling in their sin of idolatry they weren't repenting they didn't recognize it and turn from it to try to give god more worship no they were they were just running straight headlong into it that's one reason god is posting this oracle of judgment against them but it wasn't just that the people in these towns had withheld worship they had also been sinning against god's people in particular ways. They, they've been creating trouble for God's people for generations now. So in verse 1, when we see God's word of judgment has a resting place in Damascus, we're told there. Well, Damascus was the capital city of, uh, of Syria, which was a long-standing enemy of Old Testament Israel. They were regularly warring against God's people. We see that in particular at the end of 1 Kings. You could read some of those chapters this afternoon, and you'll see what the Syrians did to Israel Verses 2 and 3, they mention Tyre and Sidon. At the end of verse 2, the Lord says those are two cities. At the end of verse 2, he says, though they are very wise. He's probably talking about their skill at trading with other nations. Those two cities were known as really, really good traders. So you yourself might be somebody like this, or you might know somebody where you can go to a yard sale or a secondhand store, and you can talk somebody down. You can get a good deal. Well, Tyre and Sidon, they were known for that. They did that with other nations. They they sort of would heap up all these benefits because they were good at trading. But see, along the way, they, they had taken advantage of God's people through that skill of, of being good at trading. L- listen to Ezekiel 26, verse 1. Tyre said concerning Jerusalem, so that's one of these cities, Tyre. Tyre said concerning Jerusalem, Aha, the gate of the people is broken. It has swung open to me. I shall be replenished now that she is laid waste. That's just one example. They exploited God's people. When God's people were weak, they came in and exploited them, took advantage of them. Look over at the the places mentioned in verses 5 and 6. Again, we're talking about these nations as they've attacked God's people. Verses 5 and 6. Ashkelon shall see it and be afraid. Gaza too and shall writhe in anguish. Ekron also because its hopes are confounded. The king shall perish from Gaza. Ashkelon shall be uninhabited. A mixed people shall dwell in Ashdod, and I will cut off the pride of Philistia. So those those four cities, Ashkelon and Gaza and Ekron and and Ashdod, those are four of the five main centers for the Philistines. These folks, and you know that name from the Old Testament. Those are the folks that regularly were giving Israel trouble in the time of the judges and then the monarchy with Saul and David and Solomon, and then after the monarchy. So so remember what we've seen in the sermons that Tim and Mark have preached in 1 Samuel? So the the Philistines, they were the ones who captured the ark, and they put it in front of their god, Dagon. You remember that? And then the statue's legs get cut out from under him, which is pretty great, and his hands get cut off. Uh, They're the ones who end up killing Saul in battle. It's the Philistines that kill the, the king of Israel. And even after the monarchy falls apart in Israel, after David, they continue to cause trouble for, for God's people. So, so at the end of our passage, all that to say, the, these are enemies of Israel. They've sinned against God's people. So at the end of our passage, when God talks about the upshot for his people that comes from these enemies being judged, he calls all these nations oppressors in verse 8. So they were harming God's people. So, so all these places God lists in our passage, these are groups of sinful people. These nations, they had blatantly broken the two most significant commandments. They hadn't loved God because they'd been withholding worship from him and giving it to fake gods in an ongoing, unrepentant way. But then they'd also hated their neighbor, the Israelites, God's people, by regularly attacking them, taking advantage of them. And see, the Bible teaches us God can't ignore that. He can't pretend like he, he doesn't see sin. He can't pretend that sin isn't bad. You know, you you can think about stories that you've heard in the past about abuse of women or children, maybe. And stories like that, if it has this component, it's always the worst part. Oftentimes, other people knew it was happening, and they just turned a blind eye. They didn't do anything about it. They just let the abuse continue. They, They covered it up. Well, God isn't evil like we are. He doesn't cover anything up. He never ignores evil. God has to deal with sin, and and that means he also has to deal with sinners, the people that produce sin. And that means that everyone born into this world, this is the bummer about this, but it's reality. It means everybody born into this world is born with a warrant hanging over them, a sentence that they deserve because of their sin. And we're all sinners. Listen to the way Jesus talks about it. This is John chapter three, verse 18. He says, whoever believes in the son is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already. Isn't that interesting? He doesn't say, no, you're innocent until proven guilty. You get to the end of your life and then God makes a proclamation whether you're guilty or not guilty. No, he says for everybody who's not believing in Jesus, they are condemned already. What that means is they have a sentence of guilty hanging over them. They're like Raphael Palmero, who knows, the MLB knows I've cheated. It's not public yet, but there's this charge of guilty that's hanging above me. So the person walking around in this life not worshiping the one true God through Jesus, that person's walking around condemned. The oracle of God's judgment is resting on them, the way it says in verse 1 and 2. So see, in that way, God is, is against sinners. But the thing is, the world of God's enemies, they're blind to that fact. Until they turn to Jesus, your non-Christian family member or neighbor or co-worker, they're, they're under a death sentence right now. That's their situation. That's the reality that they're walking in. But you would never know it by the way they act, right? Because they don't, they don't think about it. The, the world of non-believers, it carries on mostly like there's no problem at all. And this reality is the second main point that we notice in our passage. The world will distract itself from the thoughts of God's judgment. So all these nations, God's judgment is standing over them. So two of these cities, Tyre and Sidon, God's judgment is hanging over them. But look at how they're feeling. Second half of verse 2. Tyre and Sidon, though they are very wise... Tyre has built herself a rampart and heaped up silver like dust and fine gold like the mud of the streets. So the cities of Tyre and Sidon, they're not thinking about God's judgment at all. They think they're doing great. They're happy. They're comfortable. They're, they're at ease. After all, they've got these ramparts. You've heard that word before. It's just like walls that they would build around ancient cities to, to keep enemy forces from being able to come in. So they're protected from invasion. They feel pretty well defended. Pretty safe. In fact, the word tire, it literally means rock. They saw themselves as secure in that way. But they've they've also stored up all this material wealth. So we're told that that they have as much silver as there is dust. They have as much gold as there is mud in the streets. Now, the Lord's being hyperbolic here, right? But the point's clear. They were doing really well. They had lots of safety, they had lots of wealth. They think they're doing great. And the other nations mentioned here, they're not thinking about God's judgment either. They think that they're all doing fine. So in the middle of verse five, we're told that when God's judgment comes to Ekron, their hopes are confounded. So they're basically confused by it. That's because they thought they were doing great. They did not see this judgment coming, right? It was confusing for them when it happens. At the end of verse six, God's future judgment is said to cut off the pride of Philistia. That means that they had pride. Again, they, they thought they were doing great. These nations, they just weren't thinking about God's judgment. And our culture is no different, right? In fact, if you can remember walking through life as a non-Christian, a lot of folks in here, you became Christians when you were really young. Probably can't remember much before that, but many of us became Christians later on. You can remember that. As a non-believer, did you think much about the fact that God would judge the world one day? You'd have to stand before him. give an account for your sin. As a non-Christian, I don't know if I ever thought about that. I had people tell me about that. It went in one ear and out the other. I was not interested in thinking about that in the least. You might have been the same as me. I bet at least you didn't think about it that often. But see, non-believers, by and large, distract themselves from thoughts of God's judgment. Before a person has the Holy Spirit open their eyes, that person is just spring-loaded to not think about their guilt before the Lord. In fact, listen to what Paul says about all mankind. This is Romans 1, verse 32. It's exactly what we've been talking about. Romans 1, 32, Paul says, though they, he's talking about the world of sinful people, all of us, though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such sins deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. So Paul says, OK, part of being created in God's image is, you know, you're guilty of sin and you know that you deserve a just sentence for that sin before a holy God. But that's part of being created in God's image. Every person knows that. But what do we do with that knowledge? Paul told us that in Romans 118. We suppress that truth. But see, this all fits with the experience of these nations around Israel. God's judgment is coming, but the world will distract itself from thoughts of God's judgment. And so if if you're here and you're you're not a Christian or you don't know what you think about Jesus, that's the question for you to think about now is, do I distract myself from thinking about God's judgment? Do I just try to ignore the fact that his judgment is coming one day? And uh, the next question, even more important, what's your plan god's judgment is coming one day so so what's your plan we just talked about how this god is a holy god he can't ignore sin he can't overlook it sin has to be dealt with even if you could have all your sins from the past erased which by the way there's no way to do that outside of christ but let's say there was even if god overlooked all your past sins you're going to sin this afternoon just like i'm going to sin this afternoon and then what do you do you're going to build up sin for the rest of your life until you die or, or christ returns we'll see that the only option is to either pay for your own sins or let jesus pay for your sins that's why he came is to take your sins and my sins on his shoulders so he could stand in our place and pay for our sins and be judged by the lord in our place on our behalf so so that's our message to you if, if you don't know christ our message is run to the cross Trust in Jesus, put your full hope and confidence in, in him, turn from your sins and turn to Jesus. It's the only way to avoid judgment and to have your sins dealt with where you don't have to deal with them on the day of judgment. Come and talk to me about that if, if you're interested in thinking more about that. So, so the world, it, it will distract itself from thoughts of God's judgment, just like the nations in, in our passage are doing by thinking about their perceived safety, thinking about their wealth, Whatever can take their attention away from the fact that they're guilty before a, a holy God. And the thing is, even as Christians, we can do that to a degree. I think we all do that. So, so we can sometimes use our good worldly situation to keep us from thinking about our sin. In fact, we, we may even think that material blessing proves that God is pleased with us. That's an easy thing to do sometimes, right? You know, I know I'm sinning in this way, but God must not be too displeased with it because my family's doing great, and things are going well at work, and I've got this house, and I have all these things, right? It, it looks like that's what the church in Laodicea, in Revelation, was thinking. Listen to what God says to them. This is Revelation 3, verse 17, and the Lord says, For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. You're not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind and naked so see they they were focused on their material prosperity and they were overlooking their spiritual poverty but that's an easy thing to do it's a temptation i think for for most of us if things are going pretty well with our family or with work or with our health it's it's easy to think that means everything with us is is going well but what scripture teaches and jesus just told us in revelation 3 certainly it's true from these cities that we just read about in, in zechariah your material well-being has no necessary connection to your spiritual health. These nations were doing great materially, and they were about to suffer the judgment of God, right? Your material well-being has no necessary connection to your spiritual health. Now, now you may know that. So you don't use your good earthly situation to, to overlook your bad spiritual situation, but you may just use your good earthly situation as a distraction so you don't have to th- Think about your bad spiritual situation i think we're tempted to do that but but for both of those bad ideas here's a trick that will help think regularly about god's judgment so if you're tempted to overlook your sin and distract yourself by just thinking about the good things going on in your life and let that lead you to overlook your sin think regularly about god's judgment that's a remedy that will fix that kind of thinking. It's it's obvious that if Jesus returned tonight and and all of a sudden you're standing before the Lord, it's obvious he won't care how much money is in your bank account, right? He won't care how many promotions you've gotten at work. He, he won't care how well your kids are doing or your grandkids are doing. No, what he'll be concerned with is your spiritual health. So it kind of brings us back to earth. It brings us back to reality. If If we think about God's judgment regularly, in fact, the apostle Paul and the apostle Peter, they both tell us to do this. This is advice to Christians from Paul and Peter. Listen to Paul, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10. He says, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. So Paul says, hey Christians, remember God's judgment is coming. Think about your life in accordance with his coming judgment. Or this is Peter, First Peter chapter 1, verse 17. If you call on him as Father who judges impartially according to each one's deed, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. Now, Peter doesn't mean sinful fear or scared to death. No, God is our Father, he's gracious, he's good. But he says that we should walk through this life with a certain degree of reverence when we remember that we will stand before God's judgment seat as well. God's judgment is coming. That, if we think about that often, it, it'll, help, it'll help us to take stock of our spiritual health and of our sin and our holiness. And we know that if, if even as Christians we struggle with this, you know, not thinking about God's judgment much, letting material prosperity distract us from spiritual health, well, the world will distract itself even more, Right? So that is something that we wanna be aware of. Don't, don't you wanna help non-Christians with that? The non-Christians in your life that you love and care for get to be around often. This is something you could pray that the Lord would use you to help them see this, to help them think about God's judgment. And here's, here's one easy way to do it, is, is when there's an opportunity to mention God's judgment and that you live your life in part because you know God's judgment is coming That will help the nonbelievers around you, at least in that moment, to have to think about it, right? They'll think, you know what, this person that I trust and love and know, they think about God's judgment often. I don't think about it at all. And at least in that moment, all of a sudden, they're forced to to think about it. It's the thing that we want to pray for, that the nonbelievers around us would, would come to realize God's judgment is coming, that they would think about it. But see in our passage, these enemy nations, they they thought they were doing great and that they didn't have anything to worry about. Verse two, Tyre and Sidon, though they are very wise, Tyre has built herself a rampart and heaped up silver like dust and fine gold like the mud of the streets. So this world, it will distract itself from thoughts of, of God's judgment. But here's the main idea of this passage. It's our third point. The world can distract itself all it wants, but eventually God's judgment is coming. And when that happens, a sinful world will have no defense against God. So, so Tyre and Sidon, they, they have their big defensive walls. They have all their silver and their gold. But look at what will happen when God's judgment comes down on them. Verse 4, But behold, the Lord will strip her of her possessions and strike down her power on the sea, and she shall be devoured by fire. So their walls and their wealth, it won't do anything in the least in preventing God's judgment from from wrecking them. Look over at verse four. Ashkelon shall see it and be afraid. Gaza too and shall writhe in anguish. Ekron also because its hopes are confounded. The king shall perish from Gaza. Ashkelon shall be uninhabited. Now, it looks like this prophecy did have sort of an immediate fulfillment. Alexander the Great, when he is raised up and he puts his army together and he starts kind of sacking everybody where he goes through those nations, he's going to come through and and destroy these cities. But that destruction, as we've seen so often in Zechariah, was really pointing forward to a much greater end-time destruction of of God's judgment, what the Old Testament prophets call the day of the Lord. And we know it's pointing to that end-time judgment Because at the end of our passage, the final verse says, no enemies will ever march against God's people again. Well, that's a promise that's only fulfilled when Christ returns. So one day, the the, the defeat of the enemies of of God's people, it will be total. A sinful world will will have no defense against God. Look back up at at verse 4. It says, but behold, the Lord will strip her of her possessions and strike down her power on the sea, and she shall be devoured by fire. So God's judgment will take everything from his enemies, including all, all the power that they've, uh, that they've accumulated, and they'll be destroyed. But we do learn from Jesus that the, the destruction of God's future judgment, it's a destruction that never ends. So it's a little different, isn't it, than the way that we think about destruction. It's a destruction that is ongoing. It never actually ends. In Mark nine forty eight, Jesus says, the fire the fire of hell the fire is never quenched meaning it never goes out the punishment goes on forever that's why in matthew 25 46 jesus calls hell eternal punishment and that punishment it it will bring with it pain we see that in our passage the middle of verse 5 we're told gaza shall writhe in anguish And like we saw in our last point, the the world of God's enemies, they they distract themselves from thoughts of God's judgment, which means they'll be surprised when it comes. It's one of the scariest things, isn't it, about God's coming judgment. His enemies will be surprised when it comes. So one minute in verse 3, they think they're doing great. The next minute in verse 4, everything is taken from them. And God's judgment is like that. Jesus compares it to the flood, the flood story from Genesis with Noah, Listen to Matthew 24, verse 37. Jesus says, For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying and given in marriage, until the day when Noah entered the ark, and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. So they all thought everything was great in Noah's day until the floodwaters came and they were swept away. And that's how God's ultimate judgment on the world will work. People won't be ready for it, but but it'll come nonetheless. And even the most powerful of, of God's enemies will have no recourse on that day. They'll have no defense. Listen again to our New Testament reading from this morning. Revelation 6, verse 15 and following. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals... And the rich and the powerful, and everyone slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? See, all of this is, is good news for us as Christians because in this life we have enemies and they are powerful. And So we look forward to the day where they will be destroyed. They would continue to attack us forever unless God destroys them. just like the nations around Israel here in this passage would have continued to attack them. So, so who are these enemies? Well, we read about them in our congregational reading. from Mark chapter four, "The sower and the seeds." You could, you could look back in your worship God if you want to, and, and look at that passage. Remember, one kind of seed it doesn't survive because of Satan. It's one of our enemies. The second set of seeds don't survive because of the, the world of God's enemies. Jesus talks about tribulation and persecution. As the world attacks Christians, that's a second enemy. And the third set of seeds doesn't survive because of our own sinful nature, the, the desire for riches and other things. That's our sinful flesh. So those are our enemies, the world and the flesh and the devil. They're, they're regularly attacking us. They're trying to get us to, to let go of our hold on Jesus and it's exhausting work battling them, isn't it? If you're aiming to live the faithful Christian life, you know that's tiring work. It's it's hard. That's why the Lord told us several times in our passage last week we need to make our hands strong. Because he knows it's it's hard work. Persevering in the face of attacks from the world and attacks from the flesh and the devil, it's it's difficult. But see, these enemies will one day be completely defeated. Listen to our call to worship again. First Corinthians 15, 24. Then comes the end when Christ delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. So that's our promise. Jesus will one day return and put every one of your enemies under his feet. So Satan will never bother you again after that point. The world of God's enemies will never attack you again. Your sinful flesh will never tempt you again after Jesus returns. In the words of verse 4, those enemies will be struck down and devoured. So a sinful world, it will have no defense against God. And this this really shows off God's incredible grace because you and I deserve to be in that group that's struck down and, and that's devoured. That's what we deserve And this is our final point. God chooses to save people from these enemies. Look at verses 7 and 8. He says, I will take away its blood from its mouth and its abominations from between its teeth. It too shall be a remnant for our God. It shall be like a clan in Judah and Ekron shall be like the Jebusites. So what's the Lord talking about here? He's saying there's a group from within these enemy nations that God's going to rescue That he's going to bring to himself he says it's a remnant that just means a small part of the whole there's a group of people god's planning to rescue from the abomination of idol worship he's going to incorporate them into his people the way that that a remnant of the jebusites were made part of judah after they they took over that land it's the same thing god promised back in chapter 8 verse 23 In those days, ten men from the nation of every tongue shall take hold of the robe of a Jew, saying, Let us go with you. So he's saying there's going to be other nations that God saves people from, not just Israel. And even earlier in the book, chapter 2, verse 11, And many nations shall join themselves to the Lord in that day and shall be my people. And isn't that an incredible thing? God could have simply decided to destroy all of his enemies. That's certainly what we would have done if we were in his shoes. We create this people, have a relationship with us, worship us. They do the complete opposite. We would destroy those enemy nations, all of them. But but God doesn't. And it's because he's so gracious. He decides to save a group of the very folks who hate him and hate his people. And this was something that was completely foreign in the ancient Near East. So when there was war those enemy nations, they were either killed or they became slaves. Those were the only two options. But see here, God takes a group from his enemies and he makes them his children. He he promises he's gonna cleanse them from their sin and make them part of his people. And if you're a Christian, then this is your story. I just described your story. This is Revelation 5, verse 10. While we were enemies... We were reconciled to God by the death of his son. And some good news for us is once you've been reconciled to God by the death of his son, you can never be his enemy again. And he will protect you and preserve your spiritual life. Look at at the final verse in our passage, verse 8. God says, Then I will encamp at my house as a guard, so that none shall march to and fro. No oppressor shall again march over them, his people. For now I see with my own eyes. So if you're a Christian, God God will see to it that none of your enemies will, will overcome you in this life. And he'll see to it that they are all one day completely destroyed. So this is the oracle of God in our passage. Because of your sin, you deserve to be judged. But because of God's grace, not only will you avoid judgment because of Jesus Christ, God will one day judge all of your enemies. Verse eight, then I, will, then I will encamp at my house as a guard so that none shall march to and fro. No oppressor shall again march over them. For now I see with my own eyes. Let's pray together. Father, we're so thankful for this good news of the gospel. We know that we deserve to be judged and we marvel at the fact that you have chosen not to judge us, but you have saved us you've brought us to yourself through Christ, not only that, but now you guarantee our safe passage through this world where the devil and our sinful flesh and the world is attacking us, trying to get us to let go of Jesus. You guarantee us safe passage through this world into the next. And in the next world, Father, all of your enemies, all of our enemies will be defeated forever. I'm so thankful, Father, that our labor isn't in vain, that we do have a firm, sure hope that we get to look forward to. And we're thankful, Father, it's all built on your unchanging word, and it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.